This podcast is made possible by supporters like you. Mahalo. And by Atlas Insurance Agency, Hawaii's largest professional agency, helping Hawaii navigate insurance solutions since 1929. More at atlasinsurance.com. Hello, my kako. Welcome to a new episode of A School You Went, where we start every conversation with that question. I'm Ron Mizutani, and today we're talking about an unsolved crime that still haunts many of us today. Diane Yoyoi Suzuki was last seen on July 6, 1985, outside the Rosalie Woodson Institute of Dance, right there in Aiea, where she worked as a part-time dance instructor. She was 19 years old, a student at UH Manoa. She just finished teaching her 3 p.m. class and was set to head out to the North Shore with friends, but when they arrived at 3.15 to pick her up, she was gone and never seen again. I want to welcome award-winning journalist Robbie Dingman to the program. Robbie is the editor-at-large of Honolulu Magazine. Robbie has been a storyteller for many, many years with our daily newspapers, on television, and on the web, covering politics, crime, and she's also co-authored two books, Honolulu Homicide, Murder and Mayhem in Paradise, and Honolulu CSI, an introduction to forensic science and criminal investigation. Hello, Robbie. Welcome to the program. Hey, Ron. Thanks for Good having me. Good to have you. Uh, I'm going to jump right in it uh, because this is a this is a crime that I think if you grew up in uh, in the '80s and, and certainly the late '80s, you heard of this. And and it's been 36 years later, and her disappearance is still one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in Hawaii history. Why is that? I think a lot of it had to do with how long the posters stayed up, but more deeply, how much she just seemed like somebody we all knew. I mean, you know, we'll joke about how many people we know. They were, you know, maybe one and a half degrees of separation. But Diane, just she just seemed like that person that if you didn't know her directly, you knew her mom or you knew her sisters or you knew somebody who knew her. And she just seemed like your average person. She had not put herself in any danger. You know, I mean, it's not fair when crime victims have put themselves in sort of dicier situations. You don't blame them for what happens to them, but it sort of gives you some context for it. Whereas Diane, it was broad daylight. It was at a dance studio. She was surrounded by friends and then she was gone. Just like that. And I like what you said, because again, I didn't know Diane Suzuki personally, but I felt like I know her. And I felt like I knew her, even though covering the story later on in, in, in my career, as did you, uh, how she disappeared. Police found her her keys and her purse still in the dance studio, car still in the parking lot. So clearly she had not left the property. So something went wrong, something happened, and she was gone. And, and, and just literally gone. Um, the name Dewey Yamasaki came up early in, in the investigation. Dewey was a photographer. Uh, she, I guess, with the dance studio as well. Yes, he um, was working at the dance studio and had a small studio yeah. upstairs down the hall from where she was teaching. So how did he become a person of interest? Uh, I know Dad and, and the family spent some time just hanging out, hoping she'd show up. How did Yamasaki become such a focal point of the investigation? Initially, some of the responding officers didn't really believe that something bad had happened. Initially, they just thought, oh, here's this, you know, young girl and, you know, she's 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 popular. It's the middle of it's broad daylight. And they thought she just walked away. So some of the people who investigated initially didn't consider it 
something super serious. They never looked at it as a murder. They just figured she was a runaway. She was going to show up the next day or a few hours later and say, oh, I forgot to tell you, I, went, I joined some other friends. But everyone around her said that wasn't the case. So they did talk to Dewey Hamasaki, the photographer, that day at the studio. But because I think from researching it further, because it didn't seem that serious at the time, they didn't look too closely at him. However, they did talk with him, and he did have blood on his hand, and he did tell them that he'd fallen and he'd hurt his hand on a scissors. So they looked at it. And then within the frame of a short time, they did end up interviewing him, and he had agreed to a polygraph. And uh, we found out later on, years later, when the search warrant happened at the studio, we found out that in the polygraph um, exam, the examiner described him as deceptive in his answer to what, do you know what happened to Diane Suzuki? So he, he failed the polygraph he failed. test. Yeah. yeah, But as you know, polygraph is not admissible in court. Yeah. You know, uh, technology changed many years later, uh, but it just felt like, and I, I don't want, you know, I have friends in the force and I, and, and I don't ever want to question uh, people's practices. And, and But did something go wrong in the investigation where it took so long to get warrants and, and leads, and, and it was just the community was th- you know, craving answers. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, you know, my, my ex-husband was involved in the case, and he was an investigator on it, and I have a lot of respect for the police department Absolutely. as well. Um, I think there was a, a mixture of responses at the beginning from going back and doing the interviews, and there was someone actually you might know, there was a man who went on to become a homicide detective, John Isabello, and he responded to that case. And he always kept it in his mind until the day he retired and he pursued it. But I think, some, as I said, the initial response wasn't as a, as a possible murder. The initial response was, ah, these kids these days, she probably just walked away. So I think there was a little bit of a bungle there. What happened was at the time when the investigation, when they did search the studio, they didn't search the whole studio right away, which, of course, now looking back, we think, why not? How the heck? Yeah. Why didn't they do that? So what happened was when they, after the report, and they saw Dewey Hamasaki with uh, blood on his hand, then the, I think it sounded like the police officers basically took the information and left. And then the dad and the sister kept thinking about it and kept thinking about it and didn't know what happened. And they went back the next day because they had the keys to the studio and they searched the whole studio. It seemed that the bathroom there was the, the door had um, been um, Jimmy, the door jam was broken. So somebody it appeared had broken into it. And then they did see something that looked like blood, but it wasn't a large amount. But again, this was a day, a day later. The other uh, troubling part was that as the witnesses were interviewed, someone said that they had seen Dewey Hamasaki's family members mm-hmm. carrying something yeah. out of the studio. Yeah, a large, um, heavy trunk is what it was described. And it was, da- I think it was Dewey's dad and his sister were part of that. And they were witnessed driving off on a pickup truck. Nobody ever found that trunk, or at least what was it in it, or if anything was in it, but it just looked and appeared to be a, a heavy trunk is what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that seemed very troubling right. because in addition, even though it, it sounds it sounds horrible, it looks very bad for everyone involved. In addition, the sister also taught part-time at the studio. Yeah. 
so you, I think there was a lot of disbelief in that. Could you do that? Could you help cover up a terrible crime of someone who was your colleague? Oh. I guess if it was their family member, that uh, raises other questions, you know? Yeah, there was, I mean, so many questions about that. And I know this was happening right at the same time that HPD was dealing with what they thought was Hawaii's first serial killer as well, uh, with the Honolulu Strangler, I think. It was an... So there was a lot of unsolved crime and murders already uh, taking up a lot of energy, a lot of resources. I'm not saying that was a reason for not following, uh, not saying following through, but Suzuki's disappearance um, came at a time when there was a lot of crime. Yes. And as I said, I think there was a lot of suspicion at the time uh, um, that that initial response where they thought it wasn't a crime um, that that harmed it. And then that allowed the crime scene to be cleaned up, if you will, because it it appears to most people investigating the case that she was, it appears that she was murdered in the bathroom. So with the tools that the police had at the time in 1982, that was all they were able to do with the evidence. They, they talked with the prosecutors, but they didn't, the prosecutors didn't think they had enough evidence to go forward with the case. So the case remained open and it is still open to this day, mm. but they, it sort of went into a stall where, as I said, I know um, Detective Isabella and some others, you know, were always having it in their mind. And then the family was printing out those posters. And I mean, I've gone to places in IA as recently as five years they're ago. And they're there. still up there. Yeah. And they would, and there was video. Uh, KHON got video mm-hmm. of her dancing at Blaisdell mm-hmm. because she'd been a dancer so long. So I think there were things that helped to keep the case in our minds, but at the time, the police ran into something of a technical roadblock in that with the tools they had at the time, that's all they could do. Right. So the thing that brought the case back into our minds was when years later, the police had developed, um, had started working with the tool Luminol. Yeah. And Luminol, as you know, it responds to iron. So there's iron in our blood. So if there's blood spilled, then you can, even though it's been scrubbed away, if you spray luminol and then wait and then darken it and then turn on uh, black lights, it will glow. And that's what happened was that when the police went back and executed a search warrant at the Rosalie Woodson Dance Academy at that bathroom, shortly before the search warrant, they found out that the floor had been removed and they were thinking, "Uh uh-oh. But what happened was when they luminoled the area, you could see a cross checkerboard pattern where the floor had been, and so there were lines that darkened. And so they did, they felt the police felt at the time they had enough t- circumstantial evidence to bring it forward, but they faced some resistance, including one that really gets me, and I'm sure will get you too, is that some of the people said, "Oh." Well, it's a bathroom, and it's a woman's bathroom, so, oh my. you know, there could be blood on the floor, because, you know, women, huh? Oh, my gosh. That's, yeah. It's disgusting, but... Yeah. That, it would be a lot of sloppy women for a lot of time to yeah. develop that much blood, so... Still, that, that was enough to, to re- reopen the case. Not, it never closed. I shouldn't say reopen, but... Uh, and then they went to his home, did they not? And, yes. And so what that, happened was they tried to get search warrants that were simultaneous for the dance studio and the luminol. And then also to search um, the suspect's home, Dewey Hamasaki. And um, Dewey Hamasaki, to be clear, has never been charged mm-hmm. in this matter. Uh, the police 
did not receive permission from their captain to go forward with the search warrant at the same time as the search of the dance academy. So several months, six to nine months about later, then they did get the search warrant for that home in Aia, and they went there and they went there with dogs and army um, specialists who uh, look for remains. And at that time, they found some clothes that appeared to be Diane's and it matched with what she was wearing that day. But it had been so many years that they, the family couldn't say for sure. It was the same size. It was the same style as things she would wear. But they couldn't say for certain it was her clothes. And then the Army specialists also said that an area that the family said was had been there for many years, it appeared to them to be a grave that had been disturbed about six to nine months before this. An attorney came to the scene, because I was, I was at that scene. An attorney came to the scene and, um, for the family and spoke to the police officers and said they were willing to sit down and talk about the case. But the police officers told that to the prosecutors, and the prosecutors at the time, that was when Keith Kaneshiro was still the mm-hmm. prosecutor, um, they declined to take the case forward, saying that they did not have enough evidence to go forward. And I know, I mean, I'll be candid, but you know this. My ex-husband was um, Gary Diaz, and we were not married at that time. We had not started dating. But as time wore on and we wrote the books together, that case was one of those that we came at from such a different angle. Sure. Where I was always pushing to tell more people more things, and he was always pushing to tell fewer people fewer things. <laughs> so I know, um, sadly, he passed away last year, and oh, I guess in 1920. A year and a half ago now, in the summer of um, 2020, but I mean, to his to his grave, he took that that was one of the cases that he had really hoped that they could solve. And he, um, in his retirement job after he left the department, he worked with Susan Suzuki at Queens Medical Center, and they always continued to have hope that somehow there would be another break in the case because the luminol was a big break in the case. And then finding the um, evidence of a grave was another big break in the case. And they kept, they were, they were so hopeful that they could have at least brought closure and, and found a grave that, or found out what happened to Diane's body and that they could have taken that to the family before the family members died. But uh, her parents have, have passed yeah. away and uh, her sisters are still alive and, a lot of our code cases, and we have many here in Hawaii, but a lot of our code cases, you hope with new technology and, and just years that go by that people will step up and say, you know what, I know something that I didn't share. Uh, no closure, though, for Diane's parents before they passed. No closure for Gary Diaz, who, uh, who, who fought hard to find justice. Um, and frankly, no closure for you and other journalists and family members who pound the pavement and distributed those posters. I can still see it in my mind right now, her smile and with her hair flowing. And it was one of those cases that just made people mad that this could be going on right in our backyard to a young lady who could have been your neighbor. And I think that's what makes the Diane Suzuki case so compelling, even 36 years later. Well, Robbie, thank you for joining us. And I know you spent a lot of years um, covering police, uh, but I'm sure this is one of those cases that even to this day maybe haunts you. It does. I mean, yeah. I think about that. And I, I every now and then I'll look up 
how Susan's doing, Susan Suzuki, because she's just one of those peaceful, kind people who just wanted to remain in the background. And she spoke up because she thought if they she spoke up, maybe something would happen. Maybe there would be something that would help with the case. And I, I just always think about that. And you know how it is when you're reporting on a case, you get hip deep in it. In, and you, especially when it's so puzzling and mm-hmm. you just feel for the people and it's as much as we do our best to uh, be as, uh, you know, neutral and objective in bringing the facts forward, mm-hmm. when it's someone's life at stake, I mean, you're a human first. Well, you're a human first. Yeah, you're a human first. So this case remains unsolved. Well, folks, again, if, if you're listening to this, you have information. Again, this is an unsolved mystery. It's a cold case, but it's something that uh, I think this community can still resolve one day. And I hope I hope maybe if somebody's out there listening, step forward to say something. Mahalo Nui for joining us. Join us next time for another episode of What's Who You Went. Until next time. What's Who You Went is a PBS Hawaii production. Music by Taimane Gardner. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell your friends. You can find us on pbshawaii.org and everywhere you get your podcasts.